We've been looking at Acts since April. We've just been walking through a verse at a time, story after story. We're going to pause that until January. This week and next week, we're going to do a bit of a look back and try to tie up some loose ends with Acts. Then we'll do something for Thanksgiving, and then we've got Advent. So we'll pick back up with Acts uh, a verse at a time in January. We came to a good stopping point last week. Paul was in Ephesus, huge city in Asia, most populated city in Asia, commercial center of Asia, political center of Asia. And Paul's been there for two and a half years. And last week we saw him uh, decide to leave. And so the rest of the book from chapter 20 to chapter 28 is all about Paul getting to Jerusalem and then getting to Rome. And it ends kind of in an open-ended way. We'll look at all of that in 2017. How does that sound? So a long time from now. What I want us to do is uh, look back a little bit. It's hard when you're going through a book like we are, you're looking at a story at a time, you're diving deep into the details. Sometimes it's easy to lose focus. It's hard to keep the big theme in mind. And so the next two weeks, I want to step back and look at the big theme, uh, the big themes of Acts, hopefully to drive those points home. So we said this is our key verse. If you want to understand the book of Acts, this is the verse you need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the entire book of Acts lays out according to that verse. You have followers of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit sharing the good news of the kingdom everywhere they go as they move geographically through those areas. But again, it's easy to miss uh, the breadth of what they're doing as we focus a story at a time. There's only 25 years of history. That's how much we've covered in those 19 chapters. Jesus dies in about 30 AD, death, resurrection, ascension. That's when Pentecost is, when the Holy Spirit's poured out on those 120 people in Jerusalem. And then Paul leaves Ephesus last week, what we saw, in 55 AD. So you've only got 25 years of history that we've been looking at. And a lot happens there. But again, sometimes it's we lose sight of that. And we don't know all the place names. And so it's hard to keep everything uh, square in our mind, the church started in Jerusalem. So that pink star, that's where it started. 120 men and women. That's it. 120 people in an upper room, men and women, these Jewish men and women who were followers of Jesus. And they were still around after his death and, and his resurrection. And they're in this upper room and Jesus says, wait. You wait on the gift my father's promised. And on Pentecost, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that there's forgiveness of sins, and they focus in Jerusalem. We don't, Luke doesn't give us lots of numbers. He doesn't give us very many stats. He doesn't give us facts and figures. But he makes these statements throughout the book of Acts that let us know that uh, the kingdom is expanding, that the gospel is uh, gra- taking root in the hearts of many people. Here's some that you see in Jerusalem, which is where the whole thing was supposed to start. We see one of the numbers, 3,000, were added in one day. We see the word of God spread widely, grew in power. The Lord added daily to those who were being saved. There's our second number, about 5,000 people at that point. Many, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. The, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So there's a sense which the, the church, if you want to call it that, with the capital C, is growing. The kingdom is expanding. People are responding to the gospel. We don't know how many. At least 5,000. We don't know beyond that. And then in chapter 8, there's a shift. A guy named Philip, who's one of the guys who was supposed to uh, wait or serve the widows. 
He goes to Samaria, which was a huge step. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. He goes to Samaria, and he begins to minister there. And the gospel is planted in Samaria, which is a miracle. That wasn't supposed to Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So the fact that Philip goes and is able to uh, find a place there is, is pretty miraculous. And you see here, we see Samaria receives the gospel. We see Peter in two other towns in Judea, Joppa and Lydda, and he goes and establishes churches there. Again, we don't know how big any of these churches are, but Luke gives us a hint that the gospel of Samaria had accepted the word, and so they sent Peter and John. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and increased in numbers, and the word of God continued to spread and flourish in Judea. So we see this scripture being fulfilled. Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled as we move through Acts. And then in chapter 13, there's a hard shift. Jerusalem fades into the background, and Antioch becomes the focus. It's a church about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It's planted by nameless and faceless Christians. We don't know who they are, but they become the primary sending church. They send out missionaries all over the Roman world. First church to ever do that. The first short-term missionaries and long-term missionaries come from Antioch. And so we've, we've been looking at Paul. You don't, it doesn't matter about the cities. You don't know where they are anyway. Just those green stars. The big one is Antioch, and all the small ones are churches that Paul planted. We know there were other churches that were planted during that time from reading other uh, letters of the New Testament, but not even using those. Just Paul makes that, he, he kind of runs that circuit over the course of a handful of years. He establishes churches in almost every major city Along that route, we see the gospel continuing to expand. And Luke continues, he says, this is what's happening. In Antioch, a great number of people believed. In Galatia, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. In Ephesus, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In Asia, large numbers of people were coming to the Lord. So we see the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We have spirit led, spirit-filled followers of Jesus who are carrying the good news of the kingdom everywhere that they're going, and the gospel's taking root, and things are beginning to happen in cities. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about that in light of this election that we have coming up on Tuesday. So I was thinking about Acts, and I was thinking about us, and trying to put those two things together. I I was reading, there you go, how about that? It's a good picture of everybody. Um, I don't know anybody who's thrilled with our two front runners. Um, I know a lot of people who are anxious and kind of overwrought over what's going to happen. But as I think about Acts, I'm reminded of two parables Jesus told in Luke 13. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. So when I read Acts, if I step back, I see those two parables being true. So they're true because Jesus says it. And then I see in Acts, hey, it works. We see the church begin in Jerusalem with 120 people and spread to at least 17 cities and at least tens of thousands of people. We see that in just 25 years. We see a mustard seed in Jerusalem growing into a tree in the entire Roman world. And if you're a history guy, you can go and read, and by the mid-300s, Christianity wins, basically. The Roman Empire, in a lot of ways, becomes Christianized. About a third of the people in the Roman Empire 
become Christians. Huge turnaround. We also see this idea of leaven. Just a little bit of yeast works all the way through a big batch of dough. We saw that last week. These churches are still small. In most places, it's dozens of people, maybe hundreds. We don't have numbers. They didn't keep attendance. But they're, they're small, particularly relative to the size of the cities that they're in. Ephesus had about 200,000 people, so that's three times the size of Marietta. And the church there would have been small, maybe numbering in the hundreds. But we saw last week that those handful of Christians, that's relatively, that small number of Christians, were making a huge impact. The economic system of that city changed because Christians quit buying these little trinkets, these silver shrines to Artemis. They quit buying them. And there were enough of them that quit buying them that it caused the people who made those things to say, hey, what's going on? We're losing money here. They changed the cultural identity of a city, a city that's known for this temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's why people come to Ephesus. It's to see that. It's their big chicken. And and people are going. They're not coming anymore. They're not coming anymore. And they're saying, our temple is going to be discredited. What are we going to do about it? The Christians are changing the cultural identity of a city from a place that worships this pagan goddess to people who worship Jesus. And they, they change the spiritual climate, the spiritual atmosphere, as more and more people uh, disconnect from Artemis and, and pledge their loyalty to Jesus. It does change the way the city feels because the value systems there between Artemis and Jesus are different. It's an example of leaven working through a city. A relatively small number of Christians having an impact on a city-wide scale. We see these parables, mustard seeds, leaven, working through yeast. We see those things in the book of Acts. And so then I think about this election on Tuesday. And again, I don't know anyone who's thrilled with either of the front runners. And again, I think there's, but there's a, there seems to be a lot of anxiety over which way are things going to go and if she gets it, what's she going to do? And if he gets it, what's he going to do? And all of those kinds of things are happening. What does it mean for our country? When I read Acts, if you want to see a city or a state or a society or a country impacted, it's not through a political process. It's through a spiritual one. You vote however you're led by the Spirit to vote. You engage in the process at whatever level you're led. That's between you and the Lord. What I want to encourage you to do is see in the book of Acts, if you want a society, if you want a community to change, you go after people's hearts. That's what changes. We can get upset. Who's in office and what are they doing? We live in a representative democracy. So if they're there, it's because most of the people, at least most of the people who wanted, who voted, wanted them there. We kind of get what we deserve. In some ways, that's hard to hear, but that's kind of the case in the system that we have. But if you want different people there and you want people there making different decisions, then you go after the hearts of the people who are putting them there. That's what we want to see. Otherwise, you're only left with carrots and sticks. You've got to use carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments to get people to do what you want them to do. You don't see that in the book of Acts. What you see in Acts are countless numbers of people giving their lives For the sake of the gospel, because Jesus has captivated them. They have been they have been overwhelmed by his love and by his goodness and by his grace and by his power and by this vision of a kingdom coming to earth. And they're willing to go and do and say whatever, wherever, whenever, in order to see that kingdom come. They're willing to suffer 
They're willing to move. They're willing to give. All of those things because God's captured their hearts. You don't see carrots and sticks in the book of Acts. What you see is people empowered by the Holy Spirit living out the truth that Jesus changes an empire. Again, you can go and read your history books. See what happens to the Roman Empire in the centuries to come as the the presence of the Christians and as the impact of the gospel takes root on a deeper and deeper level in that empire. It's amazing what people who are on the fringes, what people who have no political power, small numbers, what they can do, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So again, participate however you're led to participate, but recognize the key, if you want to see things change, is to capture people's hearts with the truth of the gospel. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Practically, what does that look like? I see two things. One, there's this the witnessing piece. That's from Acts 1-8. You will be witnesses, and they witness in lots of different ways. There's some of it's talking, and that's what we think of when we think of witnessing. And that, for many of us, is intimidating. Going, you know, sharing with somebody. Hey, you're, Jesus came, he's God, and he came, and he lived, and a sinless life, and he died the death that we deserve so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. And he ascended into heaven and he gives us his Holy Spirit so we can live a fruitful and a faithful life until he returns. That's the gospel in a very short amount of time. And, and we share that. And you see throughout the book of Acts, they're talking constantly. Paul especially. You see every city he goes to, he's looking for people to talk to. For some of us, that's easier than it is for others. We see they live life Together, There's a community aspect. They share things in common. They meet together. They love one another. And that catches the attention of people in the cities where the, where the gospel is beginning to take root. They suffer. And the way they respond to suffering is a witness. It points to the fact that, in their, that Jesus is worth it. They're willing to suffer the consequences of following him. They're thrown in jail. And people say, you're not going to go to jail anymore if you'll quit talking about Jesus. And they say, you've got to tell us. Is it better for us to obey God or obey you? We're going to stick with him. You've got to do what you've got to do. They accept the consequences of obedience. They don't seem to get bitter. They don't seem to get resentful. They don't seem to take revenge. They seem to respond in love and compassion to people who are persecuting them. Paul is stoned to the point that people think he's dead. He goes back into the city where these guys have just stoned him. That level of that response to persecution causes people to go, what? who are you? What's going on in your heart that you respond to unjust suffering in that way? You're going to suffer at some point. Some of you already have. Your response to suffering is a witness. It points to the truth that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Last week, just very practically, we saw that it affects the way that people's relationship with Jesus affects how they spend their money. They quit buying these little shrines, these little trinkets to Artemis, and it impacted a whole city down to that level of practicality. Being a witness is, is a, it's a public demonstration or declaration of the truth that's in your heart. You've made a decision that Jesus is the Lord, and as you live that out publicly through what you say and what you do, you're being a witness. And there's all, again, there's all kinds of different ways of doing that. Those are just some I thought of in Acts, and there's dozens more that you can think of. The way you treat your spouse, the way you raise your kids, the way you uh, do your job, the way you respond in school. All of those kinds of things, all of those can be the decisions that you make out there where people can see them. 
It required, it's what you say and it's what you do in every element, every area of your life. Those are mustard seeds and that's leaven. That begins to change things. That captures, that piques the interest of people. That causes people to say, what's different? Why are you responding that way? That's not the way I would respond. How come when you're squeezed, what comes out of you is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? And when I'm squeezed, what comes out of me is, is not that. What's different? Are you just a better person than me? Nope, not at all. I just have different things on the inside that were given to us by God. That's a witness to him. Over time, and it does take time, to be fair. It's not as quick as pulling a lever on a ballot machine. But the difference over time is much more significant. And it's much more fundamental. And it's much more long-lasting. So again, participate in the process as you're led by the Holy Spirit. And recognize, if you want to see things change, go after hearts. Not in a mercenary way. With compassion. And with love, be a witness in all these different ways. We'll talk a bit more about that next week. The one I want to end on is prayer. This is a huge one. We see throughout Acts, they pray constantly. They pray individually. They pray corporately. And what you see and what I want you to hear this morning is God responds to prayer. If you want to see things, you're not really trying. Honest. If you want to see things change in your family, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your office, in your city, in your state, your nation, your world, if you're not praying, you're not really trying. That's the key for us. Look in Acts at the way God responds to prayer. Peter is in jail. The church gathers and prays earnestly. An angel shows up in the prison cell and lets him out. What is that? Paul and Silas are in jail in stocks. Their feet are stuck to the wall. They pray. What does God do? Remember? Earthquake. An earth. What is that? Two people pray and God sends an earthquake. I can't get my mind around that. Just two guys. Just two. We're in a drought. What if we prayed? Would God send rain? Do you even, I mean, do we even think that way at all? Cornelius, he's not even a Christian. He doesn't know who Jesus is. God says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. They've ascended up to heaven. I'm sending Peter to you. Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter is a Jew. Jews won't even go in a Gentile's house. And God says to Cornelius, in response to your prayers, I'm sending Peter, not just to your house. He's going to share the good news with you, and you're going to, Encounter me. This wall between Jew and Gentile that's been that's existed since the time of Moses. Thousands of years of hostility between Jews and Gentiles comes down because Cornelius prays. You think about that. Because Cornelius prays. God says, in response to your prayers, Cornelius. I'm sure other people have prayed over time about that. But what we see in Acts chapter 9, in response to your prayers, Cornelius, I'm sending Peter. All of history changes in that one moment when a Jew enters the house of a Gentile and a Gentile relates to God without becoming a Jew. None of us would be here. It is everything about what it means to be in the family of God. You no longer have to become a Jew. You have to follow Jesus. 
changes the definition of what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. Because Cornelius, who's not even a Christian, doesn't even know who Jesus is, prays. Never, hasn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. You know who Jesus is, and you have been filled. How much more powerful and effective will your prayers be? I don't want you to hear legalism. I don't want you to hear guilt. I don't want you to hear law. I want you to hear invitation. When you pray, you influence the king of the universe. You get that. Our Father who is in heaven. Your Father is in heaven. You influence history. That's what prayer is. It's not informing God about things he doesn't know. It's inviting God to get involved. And whatever it is that you're involved with, what do you want to see? Are you asking him to get involved in those things? We've talked about these three people over the course of the past few months. You might not remember them. John Hyde, George Mueller, Jackie Pullinger, just some books I was reading. I told you about them. There's nothing incredibly special about them other than hopefully it encourages you in your own prayer life. John Hyde, a missionary to India in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He decided, he said, you know what, I want to see India. I want to see these Indians coming to Jesus. So God, give me one a day for a year. He prayed that. That year, he led 400 people to Jesus. The next year, he said, let's go for two. God, give me two a day. That year, he personally led 800 people to Jesus. The next year, he said, let's have four. I want to lead four people to the Lord a day. He did that as well. God responded to the prayers of John Hyde. He's just a regular guy. And God responded to his prayers. Now, he absolutely obeyed. He would ride people. He didn't just sit at home and wait on somebody to knock on his door. He absolutely, there was obedience involved on his part. But the key was he got a hold of God in prayer. Do you pray with that type of specificity? Specific prayers get specific answers. Do you ask specifically for things that are deep in your heart? That's why we ask you once a month to tell us what you want for your birthday. It's not just, it's not cute or a gimmick. It's because at least once a year, I want you to have to say specifically, this is what I want to see. This is what I want. Let's see how God responds when we ask specifically, and we're afraid we're going to be selfish, or it's, or it's, uh, it's too much, or it, it's rude. That's not where we live. None of those things are true with God. You remember in Genesis 18, God shows up to Abraham's tent, and he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to let Abraham know. God's already decided. I'm going to let Abraham know. And Abraham says, how about this? What if there's 50 righteous people? Will you change your mind? He's asking God to change his mind. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? Abraham is negotiating with God. Do you recognize the depth of relationship there that Abraham can go back and forth with God? And I think God loves it. Yes, absolutely. What else do you want? What else do you he, He's a father, and he's our father, and he's looking for that type of relationship with us, that middle guy with the bad beard, that's George Mueller. He, was a, he ran five children's homes in England for 60 years. He brought in, unsolicited, over $244 million in today's money. $244 million over 60 years, never asked for a dime. He just prayed, and his staff prayed. He turned down a good bit of money. If he didn't like, if he didn't feel from the Lord it was okay to accept it, he would say no. That's what he accepted. 244 million. He supported 115 missionaries. He funded the distribution of over 5 million tracts and scriptures. 
without, he didn't have a job. He ran these children's orphanages, these children's homes, thousands of kids over decades. He prayed, and God responded. I think about, man, do I have that level of trust in God? He wasn't a, he's not a hero. He's just a guy who trusted God. God, you said you would provide. You said you took care of orphans. Well, I've got a lot of them, so you've got to take care of them. And God did, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. The reason you're, you hear about him, the reason there are books written about him, it's not because he was special beforehand. It's because he just chose to trust. And then God met him in his point of trust. He'll do the same thing for you. That last lady, Jackie Pullinger, missionary from, Brit- from uh, England to the walled city in Hong Kong in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And she was working primarily with triad gang members and prostitutes. And she started and she didn't even know Chinese. She didn't know anything about anything. And there was so much need, she was overwhelmed. And so she just started praying every day, God, you've got to show me who today because I can't handle all of this. And he did. Daily, he would show her who to go to and who to share with. And over the course of these years, the city's come down. It doesn't exist anymore. That slum where she worked, it's a park now. At one point, the gang leader has to call off a war he has with another gang. He doesn't have any more gang members. He says, Jackie's got them all. It's amazing. One lady, what she does, led, praying on a regular basis. All of that is available to you. And all of that's available to me. Not because we're special, not because we're great, not because we get the words right. There is no magic formula. Because your Father is in heaven. And he says, ask. What do you want? Just ask. Jesus Jesus talks about prayer this way in Luke 11. Shameless audacity, that's the key phrase. Suppose you have a friend, you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. So first, bread's baked in the morning. Nobody's got any at midnight. Nobody does. Think about what he's asking or what this person is asking. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Suppose the one inside says, don't bother me, the door's locked, my kids and I are in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, here's the key word, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely give, get up and give you what you need. Shameless audacity is this combination of boldness and persistence. It's asking specifically for the things you want, regardless of how big they are, regardless of how outlandish it seems. It's going to someone at midnight who's got all of their family asleep with them in their one room, knowing nobody's got bread. It molds. There are no preservatives. You bake bread fresh every morning. Nobody's got any at midnight. And you go anyway. That's what he's looking for from us. And we think it's too much. It's rude. It's presumptuous. And he says, ask. Specifically, what do you want to see? What do you want to see in your family? Then ask. What do you want to see in your neighborhood? Then ask. What do you want to see in our city, in your school? Then ask. Cornelius saw a wall come down that had existed for thousands of years between Jew and Gentile because he asked. Paul and Silas, there is a natural, there's an earthquake. What we would call a natural disaster in response to their prayers because they asked. Peter is delivered from death. He's going to get his head cut off. And an angel shows up in jail and walks him out. Out because a church is asking. 
None of that has anything to do with them and everything to do with God. All of that is available to you. And all of that's available to me. Don't hear legalism. Don't hear guilt. Hear invitation. If you want things to change, you can vote. That's great. Do it. If you want things to change, go after people's hearts. Pray. Pray. It gets God involved. Better than getting anyone else involved. You're getting him involved. Don't quit. That's where most of us fall down. We pray once or we pray for a month and then we're done. You keep knocking until the doors open. He may tell you no. Absolutely. Usually he tells you yes. There are a handful of no's in the Bible. There's armloads of yeses. He wants to answer. He's just waiting. Why does it take? I don't know. I don't know why he waits. But sometimes he does. But wait and no are not the same thing. Continue to ask specifically, boldly, earnestly. That is with passion. Ask for the things that you want to see. And then step back and watch what he does. Let's pray. God, my prayer for the men and women in this room is they would hear you inviting them to influence you. We can't get our mind around the fact that you say influence me. So many of the relationships that we have with people in any level of authority, they don't work that way. They're telling us what to do. Most of us don't have a clue what it's like to have the level of access that you've given to us. We don't have a clue. Even with our own parents, we don't have the level of influence that we do with you. It's just, it's different. What you're inviting us into. So God, I pray that you would issue an invitation here this morning to our students and to our adults. God, I have zero doubt that you're calling each one of us to something. We talk about the walls of the city. You're calling the men and women in this room to a wall and you're saying this is yours now pray there may be other elements of obedience but there's prayer what do you want to see happen think about the areas where you live and move what do you want to see change and don't say it could never have it's it's outlandish I can't figure out that's great if you can't If you can't see how to get to A and B, it's a perfect opportunity to invite him to get involved. What if I'm praying the wrong thing? Then he won't do it. He'll take the heart of your prayer and he'll answer that, even if you get the words wrong. He's inviting you in to shape history by influencing him who shapes history. more important than anything else you're doing prayer you don't have to pray for hours you can pray for minutes but do it earnestly that is with passion do it boldly with specifics do it persistently don't quit if he wants to tell you no he'll tell you no but until he does you keep asking you never know which prayer is going to be the one that brings the wall down Cornelius didn't know which day 
He didn't know. He just kept praying. And then there was the day that God literally appeared in his house as an, sent an angel to say, I've heard and I'm responding. What do you want to see? Dream. Now, dream. Bigger. The one you're praying to is a good father who delights in giving good gifts to to his children. The one you're praying to has a heart that leaves the 99 to go after the one. He's a father who sits expectantly waiting for a rebellious son to come home, to, to return. That's the one you're praying to. The one you're praying to is so powerful. He speaks and things come into existence. He doesn't have to do anything. He just has to talk. And he said, what do you want? What do you want me to do? What do you want to see? God, I pray that you would kindly and gently burden the people in this room. Not with it all. That's not what you do just with our part. For some people, they're, just, they're going to be praying for Marietta High School, and that's it. That's the thing. Some people are going to be praying for their office. Some people are going to be praying for their neighborhood. Some people are going to be praying for this election in our nation. Some people are going to be praying for Muslims. Some people are going to be praying for family and loved ones who don't yet know you. Some are going to be praying for victims of the trafficking industry and there's all kinds of things that you're going to put in the hearts of the men and women in this room. And I pray that we would receive as a gift the burden that you've given us. You're not asking us to fix it. You're asking us to ask you to fix it. You're inviting us in to the process of making all things new. And God, we want to do that. We don't we are so prone to getting discouraged and getting distracted. Would you give us hope and faith to continue to ask? Would you help us focus that we wouldn't quit? Because you're not working as quickly as we want you to. God, I pray for the men and women in this room that prayer would become a joy and a delight, not a burden or a task. It wouldn't be something to be checked off, but something that's looked forward to. And again, no expectation on what that looks like in the lives of anyone here. No legalism, God, just invitation. So would you speak to us here in these last few minutes? Here's what we're going to do. You can just keep your eyes closed if you would. My ministry teams here up in the front will pray with you about anything you've got going on. We'll also make this front row. We'll make that an altar if you want to come and kneel. 
and pray, then we want you to do that. That may be a step of faith for you just to come and kneel, and we won't bother you if you do that. And then for those of you who don't want to come forward, I'd encourage you in your, just where you are uh, in your seat to ask the Lord, God, what, what is it? Where, what, where's my wall? What's the area that you're asking me to ask you to get involved in? Okay. Even in your own heart, what are the desires? What are the things that you want to see change and move and shift? Would you begin to ask God to do that?